I'm Derek Thompson, the host of The Ringer podcast, Plain English. Look, a lot of news these days is kind of nonsense. I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel here. I'm just trying to ask the questions that matter from people who know more than I do about everything I'm curious about. And that's most things. Recession fears, AI hyperbole, psychology, productivity, China, war, streaming, movies, sports, you name it. The world without jargon, the news without bias. Plain English with Derek Thompson. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money. Up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Hi, I'm Tara Palmieri. I'm Puck's senior political correspondent, and this is Somebody's Gotta Win. On this episode, we're going to do a little bit of a year in review. Um, it was a cringy year for sure, lots of lowlights, a few highlights, and it's setting us up for what I think will continue to be a very intense and chaotic election cycle with twists and turns that I'm sure I haven't even imagined yet. Um, but we'll make some predictions on that later. I brought in Axios's national political correspondent, Alex Thompson, to chat about it and just, you know, kick around ideas about what might come next and just review the year. First, Alex had a very interesting story in Axios last week. It's titled, Biden is reluctant to accept his old age. It's interesting, right? Um, he quotes a former Biden aide saying he is his own worst enemy when it comes to his schedule. Essentially, his aides are worried that he's pushing himself too hard and they're about to go into a presidential election cycle with an 81-year-old president, the oldest president in history, Um I don't know, Alex, like, how does this all play out? What kind of campaign are we going to see? Does this mean his staff is pushing him to basically run a Rose Garden campaign? And tell me what it's like to be inside the White House and trying to get your older boss to not stay up all night working or not say yes to everything. I mean, what's it like? I mean, I think it'd probably be similarly sensitive whenever you're trying to get any sort of older person to sort of realize that maybe they don't have the same capabilities, the same level of energy that they did 10 to 15 years ago. Essentially... Is it like grandpa give up the keys, the car keys kind of thing, or...? I wouldn't say give up the car keys. I mean, he's still going to keep the nuclear football here. So, uh, okay. but, I would, but, but I would say it's like... Grandpa, you know, maybe you don't have to like travel, uh, you know, across the country for a half hour event in the afternoon and then fly back and exhaust yourself for no clear reason sort of event, you know, if that makes sense. But essentially what's happening here is that 
um, you are seeing sort of a very similar dynamic that I think a lot of people probably have with some older people in their lives, uh, but you're having it on this national stage. And, and, you know, according to AIDS, you know, this sort of creates this vicious cycle where voters are already concerned with his age, but by doing, you know, some of these events where he, you know, is, you know, doing these cross country trips and like doing these afternoon things, sometimes they feel that he is overextending himself and exhausting himself for little political benefit. And if anything, it actually is a political detriment because he ends up, you know, uh, becoming fatigued and he looks even older than he is. Um, and so that's sort of this, this tug of war, you know, he does, he's make also making a lot of gaffes on these trips. Like you have to bring the press corps with you. So everything he says in someone's home with these big donors in Hollywood or wherever he goes, Nantucket, um, it ends up being in the press because the press corps is with him when he travels. Right. Yep. And the uh, more tired he is, the more gaffes he makes. Yeah. The thing is that he can't have these donors in the White House to raise money. And as we know from talking to donors, uh, they want access to the president. They want the picture. They want um, they want to be able to say, I met Joe Biden. Check this out. Um, but if he's not leaving the White House to go see them, then that's pretty much impossible. And it's also really hard to get rich people to come to you. So I think, if anything, it might affect his money, his fundraising. If anything, I think it might affect his fundraising. What do you think? You know, it could. It, it definitely could do that. I I think it's about trying to find the right balance. Like I, I don't think, um, you know, I don't think it was a coincidence to your point that one of his most recent fundraisers uh, was in D.C. Uh, just last week, and um, you know, I think they're and it's about just trying to find a balance. And you know, it's not like the only events he does are fundraisers, right? I mean, sometimes he'll go and, and do, you know, fly across the country and just do these like little policy events. They don't get a lot of attention, but they often still do at least give you like a little clip that Republicans are gonna are, are gonna show where it looks like he doesn't know which way to get off stage or maybe he's mumbling something. And I think that basically the point is the some of his top aides, in particular also the first lady, are just trying to make sure that when he is in public, that he is at his very best. And and right now, oftentimes they feel like that is not always the case. Right. And, and in Joe Biden's memoir that came out in 2017, he writes that Jill Biden was worried that his schedule was so extreme that it would actually kill him. Yes. And, you know, this this says two things. One is it, it goes to show just how extraordinarily involved Jill Biden is in the president's schedule. Um, you know, first ladies are usually keeping an eye on their spouse's schedule, but her level of involvement really is unusual. Um, and the other thing it shows is that, you know, in 2015, Joe Biden was in his early 70s. And aides from that time similarly said that Joe Biden was was saying things like, I don't feel like my age and would would push himself beyond what she thought he should. And yeah, she eventually went to his then chief of staff and said, he's not sleeping, he's exhausted, he's going to kill himself. And this was also in the context of, you know, his son being very, very sick um, and, and having cancer. But it goes to show that there has always been this tug of war uh, between uh, staff and the first lady thinking that he's doing too much and Joe Biden thinking that he can still do it all. 
Yeah, and I mean, you ha- you have to admit there is sort of a narrative that like, no, where's Joe? Even if it's a GOP narrative, um, he's not really as out there as Donald Trump was when he was president. I mean, Donald Trump was constantly talking to the press. And he was constantly out there talking, and it does seem like Joe Biden's a bit more guarded. Um, I just wonder. Um, if that's also a way to preserve his energy, because it's frankly exhausting taking uh, taking questions from the press as well. And in terms of the campaign, I mean, they should probably be working on his schedule to stack as many things as possible when he's traveling across the country, right? Yeah, you would think so. And they have been trying to do that. I mean, the the, the problem here is that it, it it is, you know, he is 81 years old and he just doesn't have as much energy. That's what a lot of the aides say. And, you know, he, I think, you know, what the piece that we call it was sort of this age denialism is that, you know, and, and so there are limit, there are physical limitations that he has. They did not have 10 to 15 years ago. And so you are going to have these where's Joe narratives. And, um, you know, I guess it's sort of, it's two bad choices. You're either going to get the where's Joe narrative or you're going to keep putting him out there, but maybe he looks even older um, and and seems tired. So, um, you know, it is... Or he'll just be gaffy and... Exactly. And, and, you know, to your point about protecting him, you know, one thing that I, I, I still find fascinating is that he is the first president in several decades to have not done an interview ever with the news side of the New York Times or with the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal or Reuters. Yeah, he always does Scott Pelley, like a guy who kind of looks like him. CBS sits across from an old white dude and answers questions. He is welcome to come on my podcast, though. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's or, true. Yeah, or he did... Or the Weather Channel. Know, <laughs> or he did, you know, uh, or, or sort of safe space interviews, right? Where he did, you know, he did a podcast on grief with Anderson Cooper uh, earlier this month. He did a Conan O'Brien podcast that just came out uh, the, this past week. So, yeah, I mean, th- there is a protection and shielding him of doing extensive one-on-one thorough interviews with news reporters. Which is what he should be doing. He needs to step up and talk to the press, as they say. Um, but... Also, I was watching him last week in his uh, presser with Zelensky and, you know, he came out and he stepped out onto the stage and he was like, said to the press, I have questions for you. Wait, I mean, you have questions for me. And like, he kind of giggled. He realized he got it wrong. But, you know, it's those kind of moments that everyone's going to kind of, is everyone, everyone, at least in the right wing universe and even on the left are looking at and they're thinking, is he stumbling? What's going on? Uh, I think this is a narrative he's going to have to face for the next year. And you write that they're laughing it off seems to be a new tactic for them. And that being defensive about it is just not working. Well, some former administration officials think it's not working. So I quote one former administration official that basically says this is a this is a voter concern. You know, even if you don't think it's fair, just just saying nah isn't cutting it. Um, given where you see in the polls that over 70 percent of Americans have serious concerns uh, about him serving a second term. Remember, like, even if you have concerns with his age now or, or don't have as serious concerns, he is running to be president four years from now at 85 years old. And, um, you know, and, and figuring out a way to do it. Now, they've made some accommodations to make sure he doesn't trip to try to get him more rest. Um, but, you know, it, it's an unenviable position because it's not something you can you can 
clearly change. It's like the one thing that they they can't change is uh, is is his age. And you know the this, the concerns are so serious. You know there was that big New York Times swing state poll you know a few weeks ago that showed Trump beating Biden. And the the one thing that was really interesting to me that I thought was a little undercovered is that the the concerns about Joe Biden's age are are, are such that Kamala Harris was out polling him in those swing yeah, states. I, she that was, was more electable. Yeah. Um, right. And they have not figured out a way to uh, change those poll numbers. And, uh, you know, if, if anyone had an easy answer, they would have done it already. But it, it's going to be something to watch over the next 11 months here. Okay, let's move on to the year in review. Alex, what were some of your highlights or at least the most notable moments? So on the presidential race, uh, I'd say there were two moments that in retrospect, if, if Donald Trump does become the nominee, which it looks like he will become, um, I think there are two moments that in retrospect will, will be the most decisive moments. And they happened in the first uh, four months of the year. Uh, one was that Donald Trump, uh, Donald Trump's campaign and his alliance super PAC dumped basically $20 million of negative TV ads on Ron DeSantis. Uh, in yes, Iowa, they buried him. <laughs> yes, and and they killed and the GOP's golden boy. He was pulling ahead of Trump. Yes, even before he was, you know, in the race. So Ron yes. Santos didn't get in before Ron Santos got in the race. Donald Trump had already spent twenty million dollars in negative ads on him, and Ron DeSantis has never recovered. Killing him in his infancy. Yeah, he waited until May and everyone kept saying, what are you waiting for? And he wanted to wait until his state legislature had wrapped up, right? They always have these governors. I mean, I get it. They are governors and they want to govern and they want to have something to show for it. He wanted to show that he passed a six-week abortion ban. Weird. That didn't end up making his, at least the donor class, happy. And I don't know that it even helped him that much with the evangelicals. And there was something else that he wanted to pass. Oh, the concealed carry permit. And all that time, Trump was destroying him. Yes, Ron DeSantis. His own delegation was endorsing Trump at the same time. Absolutely, you know Ron DeSantis's theory of the case. You know he he is a policy minded person, and he is surrounded by a lot of policy minded people. Is that they were going to show an implicit contrast, right, with Trump? Is that we get stuff done? We are the competent Trump. But the problem was that voters in Iowa didn't seem to really care that much. Uh, Instead, they did see all these ads, and then the polling sort of sunk, and then Ron DeSantis got in a tough cycle. And, you know, there was a a window in which this was a two-person race, and now it's Trump versus everybody else. So I think that will be seen as a decisive moment in this primary. I get that. I do think, though... um... Ron DeSantis was a test tube candidate, and I don't think everyone knew exactly what they were getting. I remember seeing him in New Hampshire right after he announced. He had he has obviously everyone says he's awkward, doesn't have interpersonal skills, just has a hard time making eye contact. And I think everybody had like hyped him up to be the great young warrior to take on Donald Trump. And then they realized, like, I don't know if this guy's really ready for primetime. It may have not just been the ads. I think the ads definitely contributed to it, but I also don't think Ron DeSantis really stepped up to bat um, and could really defend himself or even prove that he had uh, political talents and charm. I just wonder what's next for him. I think it's completely fair that Ron, the, a lot of the Ron DeSantis hype was uh, a lot of wish casting by by elite, like Republican elites that really just didn't want Donald Trump again. Like um, Mitch McConnell. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, 
or yeah, like all, all those folks. And so there was definitely some of that going on. Um, and you know, we haven't, you know, awkward presidential candidates, uh, don't, you know, have like an illustrious history. That being said, it's not like Barack Obama, while he had charisma on a stage, wasn't the most glad handy, you know, I I think there, there are ways that you can. Yeah, but he had, he was a transformational hope change. He was like an artist on that stage, you know, he was a rock star. A hundred percent. In the words of Julie Mason, uh, Ron DeSantis looks like a toddler in a suit. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, that's that's obviously a bit demeaning, but uh, he just doesn't have that. Uh, he doesn't have the star power. Maybe Casey yeah. does. I, I think it's I think it's possible that we would have been in the same spot no matter what. Even if Ron had gotten the race early and had done all these things we're saying, that we'd still be in the same spot now. To your point, and also as you've previously reported, right? Like, what's next for them? You know, uh, there are there's plenty of chatter about Casey DeSantis running for governor of Florida in 2026. Um, and then maybe she'll be back in Iowa herself as a candidate, uh, you know, uh, you know, a decade from now. Okay. For me, um, highlights, well, notable moments, God, Kevin McCarthy, 15 rounds to become speaker. I know it's a whole year ago, then ousted by Matt Gates, then starts like elbowing people in the, um, in the Capitol Plus, like, Lauren Boebert. I mean, these are lowlights, but definitely notable. Lauren Boebert and her, like, gross date at the movie theater. You've got George Santos becoming, like, you know, the the biggest fabulous, but now a cultural hero <laughs> um, because of his personality. There's just, like, so many cringy, horrible lowlights as well. Um, Trump's yeah, George, mugshot. George Sant- George Santos is, I, I feel like George Santos really, uh, really had a great line that explains, uh, where we all are at in his interview with, uh, uh, uh with Z-Way after he was ousted in which she came to the conclusion. She said something along the lines of, I think the lesson is we have to stop inviting you places. And then he responds, uh, well, you can't because you all want the content. And, and uh, you know that could that could even apply to Donald Trump, honestly. Um, uh, so uh, I feel I feel that's the 2023 in politics in a nutshell. Oh, I, totally! It was all about the content, not and some of it, like not even political related. Like these, this is like the Real Housewives of Capitol Hill. Like that's what I felt like I was watching. Um, they were basically flipping tables and screaming at each other the entire time. Granted, this was mostly on the Republican side. Almost all of it was, but it was just like, civility is dead. Um, But also makes for interesting copy in a lot of ways. I hate to say it. Well, that's the content. And I do feel that Matt Gates would fit in on really any season or spinoff of Real Housewives. I feel like... Yeah, he could be on a Bravo Southern Charm or something like that. He's a villain, but like, you know. What is your low light? I, I said, I also forgot to mention the mugshot. I think that was like a really, I guess, seminal moment in American history to have a former president and presidential candidate with a mugshot. Um, and then he was selling pieces of the clothing he was wearing afterwards off of it. And then to see with each indictment, Trump become more popular and the polls, um, you know, skyrocketing. It's something I never, 
I don't think I could have ever imagined it if you told me that was going to happen. Um, maybe you saw that coming. Oh, I, I definitely didn't see it coming. I'm terrible at predicting anything, but I do think, you know, Trump has. That was the other moment of the race is the first after the first indictment, Trump has never none of his opponents have ever been close. And I think, um, you know, I think we sort of underestimated like on paper. Yeah, you're like a presidential candidate under you know 91 charges uh, is usually a, a would would usually be a bad thing. Um, but also martyrdom is like a powerful force um, is a powerful rallying cry. And Trump has managed to make himself a, a you know, has really he's cast been himself. The, he's the biggest victim. And like, it's funny because Republicans are always like, oh, liberals are victims. They always choose the victim card. But like, actually, the biggest victim of all time is Trump, right? Yeah, I mean, in terms of like victimhood, I always remember there was this 2015 interview between Trump and Chris Cuomo, where Cuomo says that Trump was whining. And Trump responds uh, in a way that I felt like really foreshadowed um, uh, the next eight years. And he's like, yeah, you're right. And you know what? I whine and I whine and I whine until I win. And I feel like that's basically what he's doing in response to this too. Totally. Um, I know we said highlights and lowlights, but I realized there just haven't been a lot of highlights this year. So we kind of stuck with lowlights, didn't we? Yes. I mean, uh, I don't know what to what to be uh, excited about or say like this was a great moment for American democracy or America or, you know, yeah, we the, all the, came the together. No, it was really cringy and divisive. And I think we're getting a lot more of that next year. And that's where I want to go into with predictions. Let's do what it. What do you think? Is the presidential primary over? How's this going to go down? Um, earlier on the call, you said that this Colorado Supreme Court ruling is basically locked it up for Trump. And I you know, was getting a ton of text messages um, before we recorded this from, you know, operatives on the other campaigns being like, oh God, this is just the worst thing that could ever happen before Iowa. This just, his base is going to be so enthused. He's going to get everyone out. It's just like, it's, it's just a rallying cry right now. I, I wonder what you're thinking. Yeah, because it, we talked about this before where... The polls have never gotten, ever since that first indictment, the polls have never been close. And I feel like the only way to see this is it's going to be that, but hypercharged. Um, and uh, and so I just think um, that, I mean, uh, with the caveat that I'm terrible at predicting things. So maybe you should take the money on the other side and, and bet on Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley to be the nominee. But I feel... Um, as a, as in, as impossible as it sounds, uh, we are currently headed for a Trump Biden rematch for the next eleven months. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there have been a lot of stories about oh, Chris Christie if he drops out, and his never Trump supporters will go to Nikki Haley in New Hampshire, and maybe there can be momentum there. I don't see how she beats him, even though she has actually risen in the polls to like twenty eight or twenty nine percent after getting the endorsement of Governor Sununu. Trump is still at like forty something, um, but. I do wonder, do you think that Chris Christie would actually drop out ahead of New Hampshire and and endorse Nikki Haley? I mean, he's basically saying that she's running to be Trump's VP. He's been really vicious against her recently. They're all attacking her right now. And the thing that's like so ironic is like Chris Christie says, my campaign is about making sure that Trump does not return to the White House. But like, here's an opportunity for him to really make sure that happens. And it doesn't seem like he is willing to do that. I'm wondering, do you think he'll have so much pressure before New Hampshire to drop out and send his voters to Nikki? 
I like, nobody you, even uh, believe him after like she, he's been bashing her. I mean, I've talked to his team about this because they they've heard like the the chatter and uh, and you know obviously they're never going to admit that they're dropping out, but the 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 resoluteness of like no, this is New Hampshire, like and you know we don't care about Iowa and it's New Hampshire bust and. It, you know, their theory of the case, and they've made it explicit, is they don't believe Nikki Haley can beat Trump one-on-one. And so why would you drop out and endorse her um, if you don't believe that? So um, I would be surprised uh, if he dropped out and endorsed Nikki Haley. But, you know, crazier things that have happened. But to your point, the bigger problem is, let's say all this goes right, and that Nikki, Nikki Haley beats Trump in New Hampshire, huge upset, and then everyone else drops out. Chris Christie drops out, DeSantis drops out. The problem is that the the polling shows, all the data shows that a lot of DeSantis voters wouldn't go to Nikki Haley. They would go to Trump. Exactly. So in fact, she's better off if Ron DeSantis stays in the, the race because it's less of a delta between her and Trump. But, um, you know, I don't know. Going into South Carolina, like she really has to win in her own home state. I think that's pretty embarrassing. And... Well, we could talk about this for a while. Um, but yes, I agree with you. In my gut, January 15th, Iowa caucus, just around the corner, about a month away, I feel like Trump will probably be the nominee as well. Um, but here's another question. Do you think he'll have an ankle bracelet on him for the geo for the RNC convention in July? Uh, so interesting. You know, this is... When I think about 2024, I feel like... Um, I, in some ways, uh, am not capable or, or ill-prepared to cover it because it, I really, sh- everyone should need a law degree because it is going to be the most legalistic election probably, perhaps ever, um, for all you history nerds out there, like at least since 1876, um, which was like a crazy <laughs> legalistic election. Great reference. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For all you history nerds out there, that one's for you. So, um but so you, like think about this. So the Supreme Court is going to rule in this Colorado thing. The Supreme Court is also going to rule whether or not um the that Trump had immunity from his actions on January 6th because he was president at the time. They're also going to rule on whether or not um you know disrupting a you know a, an official proceeding, which is what Trump and many January 6th rioters have been charged with. They're going to rule if if that is uh you know an applicable uh, felony. And then, and not to mention that I think this Colorado, uh, you know, uh, victory for, you know, the, the plaintiffs, um, that got him off the ballot. You got to think there's going to be a few other states that are going to try their own version of it too. Oh, well, yeah, for sure. They've tried some of them and they failed. Um, Minnesota for one, Michigan, they said only Congress can decide. Um, yeah, that they're not going <laughs> to, they're definitely not going to vote against Trump. Um, since he's pretty much got the House and Senate behind him at this point. But I think you're right. It's going to be a courthouse election. I think Trump is going to do a few rallies and he's going to stage appearances outside of the courthouse and say he is, you know, a political dissident in Biden's administration. Um, and, you know, it basically say he's being persecuted the whole time. And I think Biden will probably be in D.C. a lot. What do you like? What do you think? You know, this is part of the reason why Trump has has re- tried to request that cameras be allowed in the first trial that's scheduled, which is in March for the January 6th case. Now, that may not happen on time, given all these appeals to the Supreme Court and such. Um, 
But there's a real possibility the Supreme Court could rule in Trump's favor in in that case, in which case the January 6th charges would be dismissed, which would create just as equal a backlash that we're seeing on the the left that we're seeing on the right right now. And then the other legalistic thing, that's just the, the, the Trump stuff. Like on Joe Biden, we're about to have a special counsel report about how his team likely mishandled uh, secret documents, um, you know, had the boxes next to his car and his garage, right? The special counsel's wrapping up that investigation. They've pledged to release the report. That's going to be bad for Joe Biden. You also have Hunter Biden now facing, um, you know, uh, basically two separate charges, a gun felony charge in Delaware, uh, several other charges in um, in California. So he's going to be going through trials the entire time. Plus, you're going to have an impeachment trial. So um, so this is really going to end up being uh, a lot of legalese and really ugly trench warfare courtroom campaign. I know. And, you know, it's interesting because people, they don't have a lot of trust in the judicial system in America in the same way they don't have a lot of trust in um, Congress and just the institutions in general. And I think Trump will exploit that. Although the New York Times had a uh, story out tonight, today uh, based on some polling that says that 25% of Trump supporters would not want to vote for him if he was convicted. I think that's pretty exceptional and interesting. Do you believe that? Mm, I don't know. It's hard to say, right? It's hard to poll Trump voters because... Um, they're kind of unreliable and they don't always come out to vote and maybe they're not answering honestly, you know? Well, the reason I ask is I've always thought it was sort of weird. If you thought the, if you thought the charges were bogus, then why would you think the conviction's legit? Right. Right. I mean, you might just think it's going to be too chaotic to have someone who is, I mean, I don't think they're going to send him to prison. I've said this many times before because he's too old. Um, you wouldn't want him to die there. And I guess he could be president from prison or just pardon himself once he's elected. The ankle bracelet thing seems more likely. And the White House is sort of a place where you could probably work with an ankle bracelet anyway, right? Um, or at least some sort of house arrest. But I could just see them being like, this is too chaotic. Like he can't even do his official duties of going to like leaving the country, you know, <laughs> as president, if you're a convict. Right? That's possible. Yeah, that's possible. You can't possible. go to China and like talk to Xi. You can't go to Finland and meet with Putin. Um, you're kind of stuck. So it's hard to do your official duties. I'm sure there's some some maybe thinking in that way. I don't know. I'm going to... I want to throw it to you to close it out. What's your biggest prediction for 2024? You can go out on a limb. I'm not going to hold this against you. Don't worry. Mm. My biggest prediction is that if uh, if Trump is the nominee, that Joe Biden will not debate him um, and they will do what Democrats in Arizona did against Carrie Lake this last cycle, where they'll take the heat for not uh, getting on the debate stage. But they'll they'll say basically like, you know, we're not going to get on stage with uh, an insurrectionist, with a liar, with you know, all these things, and they'll take the media heat in the bet that uh, a potential debate um, could be more damaging if, you know, he has a bad moment or something like that. So that's my one, uh, that's my one prediction. Yeah, I think that's a smart one. Um, I don't think that you're, I think you're right. I think Biden will try to avoid the debate. 
at all costs. Um, What's yours? Trump may be wild, but he's wily. Um, yes. And he's better at debating. He just is. Uh, I think that if for some legal reason, and I've said this many times before, that Trump is not the nominee, I don't know how that's possible. I think he'll take, I think he'll drag the whole party down with him and he'll stage his own write-in campaign. And, and if he doesn't win, I think he'll also say that he, it was a, um, a stolen election and this will never end. Um, also, I think third-party candidates will have a big impact on this election, uh, even if it's only a percentage or two, like Cornell West and Jill Stein and maybe RFK Jr. actually gets on the ballot. Maybe no labels happens, but even if it's just a few fringe candidates, because it's going to be such a close election, I think there would there may be arguments that they pull, you know, votes here or there. I think they're going to have, I think that they may have more impact than usual because it will be such a close election and there are going to be a lot of disaffected voters, protest voters. Who do you think, who do you think is more dangerous, uh, Cornell West or Jill Stein for, for Joe Biden? Cornell West. If he can get on a ballot, definitely Cornell West. Because he's really tapping into the kind of like young African-American uh, voter who's angry about the involvement of the administration in, you know, the war siding with Israel. And I think he'll continue to just kind of be there. Uh, but then again, maybe RFK Jr. peels off some Trump voters as well. And it's sort of even, but there's no, there's no saying. Um, I just wonder if like voter turnout was really high in 2020. And I wonder if it's going to be depressed in 2024 or if it's going to be high. Like if the the heat is going to be so boiling and it's going to be such a messy election that maybe it'll bring more people out, even if they're angry right now and and are saying, you know, they're disaffected. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone is uh, is saying they'll they're not excited about this election, but uh, I mean, arguably, uh, hate is stronger than hope. And uh, as a <laughs> Very motivating wise, force, Mr. Thompson, <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm here all week, guys, uh, for all the, the pithy things. So they, uh, and I think you're right that it ended up, there's still a real possibility that the fear of another Trump term or the, um, the fear of another Biden term um, could be enough to really, you know, even improve on voter or increase voter turnout from what it was in 2020. We shall see. Thanks so much for joining, Alex. I uh, would love to have you on again. Maybe a year from now, we can go over what we got wrong and right. Uh, I doubt that we will, but it'll be interesting to see how this year shakes out. I think we should hold each other accountable. <laughs> okay. We'll do it. Uh, great. That was another episode of Somebody's Gotta Win. I'm Tara Palmieri. Thanks so much for joining. We're on holiday schedule, so we'll be back next Thursday, just once next week. I want to thank my producers, Devin Baroldi and Connor Nevins. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate it, share it with your friends. If you like my reporting, please sign up for my newsletter at puck.news slash Tara Palmieri. Have a happy new year and see you next week.